You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey, welcome back. Glad you're here. My name is Morgan, the lead pastor at Mosaic. I, of course, want to welcome you. If you're new, and as they say, unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. We come to the end of our series here today in Romans 8. We'll tell you what's coming next when we get to the end of our time together today. But for now, our scripture reading is going to be the last few verses in Romans chapter 8. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, amen to that, yeah. For me, one of the great mysteries in the world, one of the great mysteries in human history is why the church of Jesus even exists at all. Frame it like this. How did a first century, basically cult that day, birth in Jerusalem, a place considered to be more or less the armpit of the Roman Empire, because if you were like a leader or a governor or a ruler and you were assigned to Jerusalem, it wasn't because your career was going well in Roman politics. How did a first century offshoot Jewish group, because again, remember, they were initially Jews from this tiny, insignificant nation, like Israel was the place where empires literally passed through, used as a rest stop on their way to conquering another nation. How did this group, whose leader was rejected by his own people, crucified by the empire, how did it survive and then multiply and thrive despite legal, systematic, state-funded discrimination, persecution, torture, and murder of its followers, a group that was persecuted on one side by the Jewish temple, on the other side by the Roman Empire. How did this happen? It started with just a few people. How did that group, a tiny Nazarene sect, eventually wind up influencing and then running the greatest empire in the history of the world despite three centuries of effort to wipe it out? Put it like this. How is it that there is now a cross the central metaphor of the Christian faith that hangs over the emperor's entrance to the Roman Colosseum. There's a picture of it. Over the emperor's entrance, there now 
is a cross. Historians ponder this. They think about this. They wonder about this. And every so often, you may be like at the grocery store and you'll see like a Time magazine or a Life magazine that they ask the question, how did Christianity really begin? Karen Armstrong, for example, she's a person who thinks about this, a British historian, and she frames the question like this. Against all odds, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We still do not really understand how this came about. Basically, she's acknowledging there was like this snowball in the first century in the desert. And it started to roll and roll and roll and gain steam. And now here we are. Basically, she's saying we had a snowball's chance. And now here we are. And what's especially amazing about this is that Jesus actually predicted this would happen. He said, I will build my church. My ecclesia, that's the word, not kirk. That's where we get the word church. That really is a German word for building. Ecclesia is the word for people. I'll build my people. And not even the gates of Hades, that word means death, not even the gates of death will be able to stop it. Not even death is going to be able to stop what I'm going to start. Not your death, Peter. Not your death, James. Not even my death, Jesus said, is going to stop what I'm starting. He said, I'm beginning this brand new movement in the world, and it's going to start right in the place where it would be the easiest to stop it, the place most likely to kill it with the most religious persecution on one hand and the most state persecution on the other, but nothing will be able to stop what I'm going to begin. And you know what? Nothing did stop it. Dr. Bart Ehrman, he's a, if you, heard, if you know the name, he's a staunch, <laughs> devout, and aggressively anti-Christian New Testament scholar, may sound like an oxymoron, I know, anti-Christian New Testament scholar at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Sorry, Tar Hill fans. Anyway, wrote this at the end of his book, The Triumph of Christianity. He put it like this. Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in that empire. It was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, philosophy, music, and on an even more fundamental level, it transformed and changed the very understanding billions of people had of what it meant to be human. How could this be? Well, if the book of Romans, as we've said, is the top of the mountain of Christian thinking, and if Romans 8 is the very peak of the top of the mountain, I think if you climb the mountain and you reach the peak at the very top, you'd find this, what we're looking at today. You'd find Romans 8, 37 through 39 as the plaque at the top of the peak of the mountain. Some of you know if you climb a mountain, many times there's a plaque at the top letting you know the elevation, something about the surrounding area. This would be the plaque at the top of the mountain and it would let you know why Christianity has become what it's become. I think on the plaque at the top of the peak of the mountain, <laughs> you'd read this little phrase that Paul uses here at the end of Romans 8 that describes who you are, who we are, and what the church of Jesus is. He says here this, we're going to look at it in depth today, that you and I, that we are, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, of course, you, as you can imagine, this word conqueror would have been super familiar to people in Paul's day, to his audience, because again, remember, there were lots of conquerors all around him, weren't there? 
all times. You know who, who the conquerors were? Of course, the conquerors were the Romans, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire came to power by conquering everyone. They were the Nikaio, that's the Greek word here, the victorious. And you'll see the, the word Nike in there, of course, or Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. The Romans were the champions. The Romans were the victorious. They were the conquerors, the Nikaio. And when Paul writes this letter, this chapter, of course, who's he writing to? Come on. Romans, people living in the city of Rome at the epicenter of the Nikaio, the very place where the conquerors conquered from and around the world today. There are still conquerors of all kinds, aren't there? They, they roll in tanks, they fly in aircraft, they march in armies to take over. Governments, nations, leaders, dictators, they sure can look like conquerors, can't they? Many times they are. But you know, if you'll notice, Paul never calls us that. He never calls us only conquerors because the people of Jesus aren't supposed to be like the people of Caesar. We don't take up the sword in the name of our God. Paul never calls us conquerors. He calls us something better, something else altogether. He literally makes up a new word. My favorite thing about Paul, by the way, he invents words all the time. Invents this word to describe those who live over and over within the love of Christ. And the word he uses is this, not just the Nikaio, the Hooper Nikaio, the super conquerors. He says, you're more than just a conqueror. You're something else that's better. And besides a military superpower, because death, you know, they can, death can stop soldiers, but death can't stop what Jesus started. At the top of the mountain, Paul claims, this is who and what we are, the super conquerors, through him who loved us. So, with all that in mind, after the world's lengthiest and longest introduction, <laughs> let me try to show you now what the plaque at the top of the peak of the mountain is all about. Let me try to show you what it means. Three things we're gonna look at today. Number one, what we, quote, more than conqueror, what we more than conqueror, why we are, who Paul says we are, more than conquerors, and finally how it all works, how we can be more than conquerors. Let's begin at number one and look at what Paul is saying here, we, quote, more than conqueror, unquote. Specifically, there are two things here that Paul shows us in this list that we more than conquer. I'll put it like this. We conquer things within we conquer things without. Things within, things without. Don't know if you've ever seen the movie Inception. How many of y'all have seen that movie? Inception, very few of it. It's the one about the, the dream within a dream, within a dream, within a dream, yeah. But the core of the movie emotionally is actually all about a man struggling with guilt, a deep sense of guilt. The main character, Dom, played by Leo DiCaprio, the plot is he, he experiments with these dreamlike states and tries to find out the, the secrets of the subconscious mind. He convinces his wife to go into one of these dreams with him where they live what feels to them like a 50-year dream. It feels like 50 years. They live it all out, but it's only a few minutes in reality in the real world. While they're in that 50-year dream together, Dom's wife loses uh, herself, doesn't want to go back. So so he plants this thought deep in her subconscious that the place where she lives right now isn't real and the only way out, because dying in a dream is the only way out, rules of the movie, okay, he convinces her that death is the only way out of the dream. So they'll come back to reality, come back to their children, their life together. So they die together in the dream. 
and wake up in reality. But that thought that he had planted in her stays buried even when they wake up. It takes over her life. She goes crazy. She's convinced that reality is just a dream. And in the end, she takes her own life. Now the police blame Dom. He goes on the run, trying to clear his name and make his way back to his kids. It's a family movie, you see. The only problem is... Despite all his courage and his genius and all his plans and how he handles a gun, of course, as an action movie, is that his guilt keeps gnawing at him. He literally cannot deal with the guilt. He takes riskier and riskier steps to avoid dealing with it. And the people he loves sometimes even die as a result of the guilt he feels. Someone finally asks him, what is wrong with you? And he says this. He said, guilt. I feel guilt no matter what I do. No matter how hopeless I am, no matter how confused, that guilt is always there reminding of the truth. Now, whether or not it was really his fault, the point is that's irrelevant. If you carry guilt, you carry guilt, right? He still feels it. It still dominates his life. And this may be you today. There may be something you've done you just can't get past. That's cost you, cost someone that you love. I have a number of friends, for example, who have inadvertently contributed directly to the loss of the life of someone that they love. It's hard to handle for them. It haunts them. It's not easy to deal with. And yet look at what Paul writes right here, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Now, lots of commentators will take pains to point out this is basically courtroom language, legal language Paul's using here. He's constructing like this imaginary court of the human heart, puts us on trial there as the guilty one before God, and then says, oh, look, look what the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ means. It means that God Almighty, the ultimate judge, mind you, has pronounced you now the guilty one as justified. Record cleared, case closed. Some of you today, guilt may be plaguing you. And of course, our past can't be changed. It can't. But the guilt we feel from the past can be overcome, dealt with more than conquered. But Paul doesn't say we can conquer things on the inside. He says we can more than conquer things on the outside. He goes on in his list. Who shall separate us? The love of Christ. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, Nakedness, danger, sword. Some of you may have read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If you hadn't, you should read it. The plot, if you want to call it that, revolves around a series of letters that the, this basically senior devil demon named Screwtape writes to his junior apprentice devil demon named Wormwood. It's all about how to lead humans away from faith in Christ. And the senior devil puts it like this in a letter that he writes to Wormwood about how to break down this young woman that they're trying to oppress. And he writes this, he says, I need to tell you something about truth, Wormwood. It's our kryptonite. We know the truth well because we twist it all the time. You've been trained to tell her the opposite of what her soul truly needs. Do you know what happens when she starts to value truth over what you say? She starts believing it. And you can guarantee some of the lies you've been telling her for years will be completely powerless. That's when you find new lies to tell her. She's so much more powerful than she knows Wormwood. But she cannot know that. As long as we convince her she's powerless, we've got the power. 
I love this because Lewis is saying here at a 30,000 foot level that a Christian is never powerless when they know the truth. When they know the truth. And he's right. So what's the truth then Paul is getting at here that allows us to overcome, overwhelm, more than conquer things that come against us from the outside. Famine, starvation, homelessness perhaps, the sword, violence, death. What's the truth that allowed that first church to triumph? It's this. I say it's this, that even if the sword gets you, something kills you, all it does is put you in the presence of perfect love for forever. Can even, therefore, the sword ultimately do anything permanently to you? No. Let me ask you, are you afraid of war today? Hmm? Storm clouds gathering somewhere, being killed by something, anything. <laughs> Let me tell you, even if it does, all you get is permanently upgraded. Don't be afraid, Jesus said, of those who can only kill the body. You're going to be afraid of something as long as you're going to spend your time being afraid, worrying? Think about this, the God who can throw both your body and soul into hell. <laughs> when you know this is true, that even death only puts you in the presence of God forever, it makes you more powerful than you can know. We conquer things on the inside and the outside. Number two, though, here's why this is true, why it can be true, why we can be more than conquerors. Paul goes on, verse uh, 31, 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously, effortlessly give us all things? Now, I want to slow it down for just a moment because... One of the more, maybe most fascinating headlines and stories and thoughts that's come out of the conflict, conflict currently in Ukraine is about the mothers whose sons are dying in the war. Maybe you've seen some of these stories and headlines. And of course, these mothers are heartbroken about it. And I don't know if you've ever met a mother who's lost a son in a war or read accounts of those who have. Now, obviously, none of us ever forget those that we love, that we lose Anyway, but there's something about a mother who's lost her son in a war. Because in these stories, and the ones I read anyway, the line usually goes like this. Her son died in the war. Meet so-and-so. Her son died in the war. Her son died in the war. And I was thinking about that little phrase about how hard it is that for those mothers or any mother who loses any son in any war, that somehow the sacrifice of a lifetime can be boiled down to six words. Only six words to sum up a lifetime of sacrifice. I mean, think about it. When that woman first discovered she was going to be a mom, what happened? <laughs> she felt nausea for weeks, probably for multiple reasons, perhaps. But she connected with the baby first through morning sickness that he brought upon her. And then when the nausea passed, maybe she felt a kick in her side. Maybe he woke her up at all times of the night and toward the end of the pregnancy, she probably hardly slept at all, and eventually she felt the labor pains, and when the time had come, she pushed, she screamed in agony before she met the boy for the first time, then she nursed the boy, most likely, for sure gave up sleep for the boy, held the fragile boy, infant, she changed the diapers, maybe she was in a home where in the house they washed the diapers, folded them, dried them, she bounced him through the colic, 
rocked him to the fevers, cheered his first steps, wiped away his tears, cleaned the first blood off the first scrape off the knee, disciplined him, read books to him, took him to school. She learned all the spelling words he had to learn. She explained math and history and the mystery of women. (laughs) She watched him grow tall and strong, maybe provided socks and shoes literally every step of the way, learned the rules of his favorite sport, though she didn't care about it, cooked his favorite meal, On his birthday, he grew up. She cried, perhaps, when he left for a boot camp. She wrote the letters. She prayed for miracles, provided that perfect meal for the last holiday they'd spend together. Read the newspapers with fear as she saw the conflict escalating where he was going to be sent to. And finally, she answered the door when the officer came and told her that her baby boy had died in a ditch, the hands of some enemy. And then you read the sentence in a news story. Her son died in a war, the war. Can a six-word sentence really capture her story? No. So when Paul gives us this sentence, God did not spare his own son. It's possible somehow to, to hear that and read that without grasping his story, God's story. Paul uses, not six, but only seven words here to describe the heartbreak of heaven And these are true words, but we can't just move past them. we got to slow down and realize there's no way any of us would ever comprehend, could comprehend, what it was like for the Son of God to come off his throne, take off his robe of light, leave the halls of heaven, make himself, think about it, a biological organism implanted in a peasant girl's womb so that one day after all his words, uh, teachings, miracles, he could die. The most horrible death known to humans so that we could finally know God. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Let me tell you, the cross is the unspeakable, indescribable, permanent proof that God is for you, for you. And no wonder when the first church, first Christians grasped this, it changed their lives. It made them more than the conquerors. Do you know this? Has this moved you? Has it changed your life? When I, when I first began in ministry years ago, I worked as a campus missionary, mostly here at the University of Texas. And to do that, my great reward for going into ministry was to be able to raise a financial support team of monthly ministry partners. And I want to tell you, if a person can do that, they can do anything in this life. <laughs> There's so much fear, at least there was for me, so much rejection, so many people telling you no, so many people critiquing you for what you're doing. What are you doing with your diploma? You made good grades, young man. You know, why are you asking people for money? And then if you do get an appointment, fortunate enough to ask someone to partner with you on a monthly basis, there's all kinds of weird stuff people will do to you sometimes. Like there's literally this one time I had a meeting with a lawyer I met with, and he told me, well, I won't support you, but for every $500 in legal business you bring into my practice, I'll give you 50. (laughs) It's weird. I'm like, 
I'm trying to change the campus, change the world, pal. Ain't nobody got time for that. So it was all weighing on me and, you know, struggling in the middle of this. Didn't know if I was going to be able to complete this task. And then in the middle of this, uh, the ministry I worked for uh, had a student conference in Nashville. So I went to Nashville and they flew me out there to drive vans for a week. That was my job. Driving vans at the conference, picking students, speakers up, dropping them off at the church. And so I'm out there struggling, burdened, not believing even I was going to be able to complete this. I'm driving the van around, just dropped off all the students at the church, feeling real sorry for myself. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this, I heard the voice of God speak Romans 8.32 to me, this verse. Now, it wasn't audible. People talk about hearing the audible voice of God. I never have. If that's you, good for you. This was more like a, a VR headset experience. If you ever put one of those things on, like swirling all around me, 360 degrees. And the voice said, if God is for you, who can be against you? He didn't spare his own son, gave him up for you. How much more will he, along with Jesus, graciously give you all things? And God heard him say to me, he said, if I gave you my son, I'll give you what you need. If I gave you my son, I'll give you what you need. And I sat there and I, I mean, I started crying, wept as I'm taking these students around to the conference and a half bad quote, that Coldplay song, you know, tears streamed down my face. All right, this became true for me. The hardest thing God's ever had to do, I want to tell you, he has done. If he's already done this, if he didn't spare his own son, why would he spare anything else for you on your expense? Listen, when I take my wife, I take Carrie out for our anniversary dinner, and we've gone to this nice place, and we've ordered expensive appetizers and overpriced entrees. Why would we skimp on dessert? <laughs> when you get there, like, we're 95% there. Who cares about another 20 bucks, right? I mean... Why can you super conquer anything you're facing? Because God's already done the hardest thing, paid the greatest price already he's ever had to pay. Number three, how does this work? How does this work then in the world? How do we express this? How can we be more than conquerors? Maybe you've heard the name, some of you've heard. If you haven't, you will. The Reverend John Perkins. Uh, John Perkins is a still living icon of the civil rights movement. And he and his wife, Vera May Perkins, loved Jesus and intentionally pastored a church in Mendenhall, Mississippi. Think about that. In the 60s and 70s to bring Jesus to the community. And he also marched and he protested and he sat in and he believed that the gospel of Jesus was not only for saving souls, but for reconciling people and breaking the power of hate. In December of 1969, after one of the black members of his congregation named Doug had been arrested for supposedly disturbing the peace, John Perkins and his four children and a friend went to the police station to get Doug out. Whenever Perkins began to protest that you know, his members' arrest, the police in Mendenhall, Mississippi, they arrested him, arrested his four school-aged children, locked them up, and began to beat Reverend Perkins in front of his children. Police released the kids, told them to go home and to keep it quiet, not to tell anybody. But of course, it's their dad, it's their kids. They started talking about it. Word got out about the beating of their pastor. There began to be a gathering at this police station in Mendenhall with people demanding that Reverend Perkins be released. And Vera May, his wife, wrote about that night, captured the moment, and here's what happened next. She wrote, it was a tense, tentative standoff white police, state troopers, and jailhouse officials, edgy and hostile, facing the gathered crowd of frightened but determined 
black kids, neighbors, and friends of John Perkins. The police wouldn't let me in to see him, and they kept trying to make us disperse, but none of us wanted to leave until we saw that John was all right. We stood out there in the dark, praying and crying, the air thick with the tension between love and hate. Suddenly, John appeared at the window of the jailhouse and started to speak. A hush fell over the crowd as he spoke, and you could hear the pity and sadness in his voice. He said many things, but his words were not angry or rash or fearful. He spoke gently, trying to reach the hearts, not just the ears, of the people with a loving message of self-sacrificing gospel truth. He said, I don't know what it's going to take for all of this to come to an end, said John. If somebody has to suffer, I'm willing. And if somebody has to die, I'm ready. Fear may went on to say that that moment and those words brought the crowd together, law enforcement and the people together. And from that, she said, they reaped what she called a harvest of healing, brotherhood, hope, and progress in Mendenhall, Mississippi. And they still see the fruit of that today. And John Perkins, who's been rightly honored for his work uh, across the country, even the SoCal surfer rock band Switchfoot wrote a song about him called The Sound. They put it like this. John Perkins said it right, that love is the final fight. So what was, what was John Perkins doing right there? Was he advocating? Yeah. Marching, organizing? Yes. Hear me. But underneath it all, he was conquering. More than conquering, actually. Slowly but surely, turning enemies into friends. And where do you suppose he learned how to do that? Hmm? Where did he get the power to to do what he did, say what he said? I think he got it from right here, from what Paul brings us to the top of the mountain to see. John Perkins got his more than conquering power from Jesus of Nazareth who defeated the power of Rome with the greater power, the power of his perfect life, suffering, death, and resurrection. Didn't Jesus say, come on, if somebody has to suffer, I'm willing. And if somebody has to die, I'm ready. And he did. And he went to the cross and he died. Oh, but he didn't stay dead, did he? No, he rose again. And that's why now the symbol of our faith in a way is a kind of a taunt. That's why the cross hangs over the entrance to the emperor's entrance at the Roman Colosseum. The cross is kind of a taunt. It's a kind of a smack talk to the devil. Smack talk to mere conquerors. It's saying, this is the worst that conquerors can do. All you did was turn Jesus into a super conqueror, more than a conqueror, and now we are the same through him who loves us. And so when Paul realizes that the greatest weapon that Rome had, intimidation, fear, torture, death, couldn't defeat Jesus, that's why he said this next, verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And do you know something? Paul was right. He was right. We are here 
Because he was right. Because Jesus promised that nothing, not even death, could stop what he started. And now you and I, in the same way we can be, and I love this, the super winners. Come on. The ultra victorious, more than conquerors, but not because of our own power, not because of our own ability, but because of, and this is the supernatural, mystical, almost too good to be true sounding promise of the Christian faith. That if you belong to, if you are in Christ, he is in you. He lives on the inside of you. And he gives you his love in all things. All your good things, all your bad things, all the things you don't even understand yet, may never understand, to make you like him who is more than a conqueror, more than a Caesar, more than a president, more than a ruler or dictator. He is the one who was and he is and he is to come. And if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you know this is true of us. Haven't all our challenges just made us better than we began? Yes. Don't we have a better story to tell now? A braver song to sing than when we began? Yes. Then what makes you think that any challenge you face or we face, this church faces, will be any different? We don't have to be afraid. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Matter of fact, now as we end, I'd like to ask you to do something. Ask the first service to do this as well. Would you mind putting that last scripture back up on the screen for us? Yeah, and actually, I'm gonna ask you all to stand. And if you're at home, you're watching, you're out, you're in the hotel, you're in your room, you're online, go ahead and stand right here with us as well. I'm gonna ask you to read this out loud with me. We're gonna confess this over our lives. Come on and say it like you mean it, because you do. Ready? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you now in this moment thanking you for this, believing this, leaning into this if we've been far from it for a while. Lord, I'm praying that every heart today would take hold of the plaque at the peak of the top of the mountain. And as we go back down into a messy world, lives, relationships, headlines, kids, job, work, health, our bodies, we take that plaque down with us. Write it on the tablet of our heart, God. And in all these things, not just conquerors, not like the people of Caesar, we're your people, Jesus. For we're more greater than conquerors alone. Help us not only to capture this, maybe even to recapture it afresh in our famine, in our nakedness, with a sword. I thank you for it now. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.